Since the beginning of time, people have always found creative ways of communicating. This is my way. I'm Kyle Leon Henderson, and we need to talk. Welcome back to what I'm lovingly referring to as the bunker because we are all hunkered down for the time being because of COVID-19. And so that means I get to enlist the help of all my friends who have the equipment in their own home to help do a podcast. And today we have my dear friend, Dr. Jeffrey Perola. Hello. Hello. Hi. Thank How you for are having you? me. I'm great. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Doing really well. How are you? I'm good. I I was just uh, reflecting this morning over my coffee of how I had this whole list of all these people I wanted to come on the show, and I never could find a time to just get it together. You were one of them, and I'm like, well, now we have all the time, and you have a microphone because you're a professional musician, so I was like, we can do this remotely. Come on yeah. into the bunker. <laughs> Happy to join you. It's fun. Well, how's everything going with the COVID-19 and the... Uh, quarantining and everything? Well, I mean, I, I keep busy and I think that that's what's keeping me level-headed. Um, I have lots of things, uh, projects that I'm working on, creative, not creative, teaching, um, taking lots of walks, cooking, nothing fancy, just making, you know, homemade meals and all that. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, being as busy as possible is really helping because I know this is temporary and you know, trying yeah. to keep a level head for, you know, the, what, two, maybe three months we have to do this. I think that's really important. Self-care, right. you know, being kind to yourself. and mm-hmm. I think all of that stuff is really important right now. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I guess I did, I did just uh, kind of jump right in. So let me back up a little bit and give a full proper introduction of who you actually are to me and to the world. You are a, well, I know you as Dr. Jeffrey Parola, but how I know you is you're the organist at my church, but also you're the choir director. So you're basically the master of music for the church, and you are also a composer and a teacher and, well, professional musician, I guess. That goes without saying because you are all that I just described. Um, So yeah, is there anything that the listeners should know about specifically what you do? And you're referring to what you were saying, you were trying to stay busy and stay creative. That's your whole life is staying busy and staying creative. So what is that for you? Well, you listed them really well. I mean, <laughs> everything you mentioned is what I do. It's it's true. And it's, it sounds like a long list, but, um, you know, I think each thing that I do complements the other and they mm-hmm. inform the other. So my job at St. Thomas, the Apostle in Hollywood, um, an Episcopal church, um, believe it or not, that exists in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> There are people who go to church in Hollywood. Um, it is a high Anglo-Catholic church. All that means is that we celebrate a liturgy that it is a little more traditional, and mm-hmm. that it's high because it it has this you know, connection to the past that has all the incense and grand music and the pageantry. Um, it's very um, beautiful. 
So that particular job as a musician, I, I get to conduct the choir and rehearse them and um, play the organ and and select all the music um, with in concert, of course, with uh, the rector. His name's Canon Ian Elliott Davis. Um, yeah, and I have a great team of musicians there that I get to work with and a great liturgical team there. Um, yeah, and that keeps me really busy. Now, of course, my experience as a musician has made it possible for me to occupy that position because I studied piano as a kid and um, took conducting lessons and singing choirs. And, you know, I also compose a bunch of stuff for the church. So my life as a composer has informed that job. Um yeah, so you know, there's a connection to everything, and I, you know, as a conductor, I also teach. Um, so, you know, I'm, I, when I'm directing a choir, I'm teaching them about the music, how to sing it. Um, oftentimes, I even have to teach them things about notation and music theory, and that's also my day job. I, I teach uh, theory and musicianship at the Colburn School in downtown Los Angeles uh, to uh, up and coming. Um, instrumental musicians who are looking to have concert careers. So that's another thing I do. And of course, like you mentioned, I'm a composer. So I got my degrees in composition um, at UCLA and the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. And then I got my doctorate at USC, University of Southern California, Thornton School of Music. And uh, yeah, I've written lots of music for different ensembles, orchestras, choirs, chamber groups like string quartets and soloists like pianists and violinists. Yeah, it's been a, a great life, and, and I get to do a lot of different things, which is, I think, the best part of the kind of life that I have. That's fantastic. And as we were just mentioning before, all of that that you do has come to a screeching halt because of a world pandemic. <laughs> so <laughs> you have to find a way to carry on with that work in a different way. So I I, I know that you and I have been in conversations, because you and I are in a, a couple of committees together at church, because um, I don't know if I've even mentioned this on the podcast or not yet, but I this year I was elected to the governing body of the church, the vestry, which is an, a voluntary position, but it also lets you see a lot of the behind the scenes stuff going on at church. And that includes for me um, seeing a lot of your work uh, as the musicians uh, at the church. So we've been talking and on the various committees that we've been part of and so you've been telling me about it and I think you might be the most tireless person that I've or the most tireless friend I have who's just keeps working through this whole entire pandemic you are always busy doing something yeah for sure well, <laughs> well like you said it's um I mean in a way I've I'm being deprived of the work I would normally do because I you know have to shelter in place like everyone else Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the great luxury that I have is that a lot of the work that I can do can be transformed through digital media. Um, it's not the same. And I certainly don't equate the work that I do, you know, like for instance, at the church with what I've had to do digitally to, to make mm -hmm. it happen. Um, I prefer of course the, you know, in-person experience of making music with others, um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've found ways to involve the music program in our digital media. Um, for instance, I've had our, our choir section leaders sing um, a quartet, you know, of, of particular pieces of music, and then I assemble their individual tracks and put it together, a, you know, a, an actual four-part presentation of their, of their singing. And, it, you know, it's, it's to good effect. People have really enjoyed it. Um, I'll have 
cantors sing remotely from their living rooms for for masses and i'll play the piano and sing myself in my own living room to accompany our Mm -hmm. our digital liturgies so you know there's there's work to be done on that front um you know that then that's just in one particular vein of my life of course teaching I'm, i'm doing a lot of zoom teaching um because the school has equipped us with that sort of infrastructure to be able to do that which is great. And, you know, while of course, same thing, I would prefer to be in person with them. We found a way to make it work and it does work. Um, not, not to the extent that, you know, in-person teaching does, but it's, it's good. It's, it's certainly fulfilling, um, you know, elements of their education that they really need to get at this stage in their lives. Yeah, that's, that's so, you've said a lot of things, um, that I will be getting into later in the episode, um, about, the work you do, but um, I was talking just yesterday with uh, another friend, actually, who's going to be on the show later next week, um, about the nature of quarantining and what we do to keep ourselves busy, and and really we got into the um, the topic of artists who have a need to perform or have a need to write or have a need to express themselves are now having to do that in different ways. And, you know, cause we, cause she was talking about how she felt bad that, you know, there are people dying in this country and there are people suffering and people cannot see their family, but also the struggle that we healthy people are feeling is very real and very valid. And I know that I mentioned that to you and you were, you were very, um, you were very comforting to me when you gave your thoughts on that. And I was going to see if you could talk about that a little bit, because you were very eloquent about what you were saying about that. Everyone should be allowed to feel what they're feeling right now. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressure, I think, put upon us to to really think positively in this moment and to say, you know, try to, try to embrace um, all the good that we have, which is important to do, of course. You know, like I think about having shelter and having food, um, and having a partner and, um, I should be grateful for those things. And I am, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, um, I think each of us are suffering in our own ways. Um, and we have to be honest with that suffering, you know, to the extent that, um, that honesty will help us to at least ventilate some of it and, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to, to let us express that feeling. I think, People are really trying really hard not to be brought down by their, you know, more negative emotions. But at the same time, you have to confront them, um, mm-hmm. you know, and there are times to be grateful and there are certainly times to lament. And and you can you can balance that out, I think, in this experience. You can you can have the moments of serious lament and, and have those moments where you're joyful for the things that you're grateful for. So I think so many people need to hear that because, I, I mean, I think on a daily basis, COVID not... COVID-19 not even, you know, being the issue just in a regular time, people struggle with struggling because we're Americans and that's what you do. You just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and you move on. And I think we are in a space where feelings matter more now than ever, in my opinion, because a, a lot of people, that's all we got is just Netflix on our feelings right now. And that's okay. Um, I'm curious though, because I'm, I've noticed things in me that have sort of bubbled up to the surface and became something that I was fixated on, which, and I use the word fixated lightly because I even, I, I use it a lot. Like when I talk about how I'm journaling, I journal 
and I just start recounting my day and then I become fixated on something and it reveals itself to be very important to me in my writing for my journal. And that really helps me to suss out what my emotions are about that. And I'm finding the, the terminology fixated is the same here. I've become fixated on some things that I'm like, Oh, I didn't realize that was super important to me. And that is the hill I'm willing to die on during this COVID-19 process, you know, and that like I was, I've been socially, you know, social media protesting these protesters who are going out in public or, you know, I'm trying to help spread articles that I find helpful. That's, that's sort of what I become fixated on. Are you finding anything bubbling to the surface that, surprises you about this whole pandemic situation that you're finding in yourself? Well, first of all, I think it's really important what you're, what you're talking about specifically the fixating thing. I think, you know, prioritizing what's important to you um, in this moment is kind of what it's about. If you're thinking about it in a big picture kind of way, of course, we're, we're kind of in the, in the, the forest right now, we're in the, in the midst of the trees and we can't see the the full forest, Mm -hmm. but you know, um, I think what it's, what it, the blessing of it, because, you know, any, any event of suffering is always double-edged, you know, it's, and in the process of enduring it, it always feels as though, um, the suffering is the, uh, the negative element of suffering is the dominant force, but actually there's always something to be learned from it. Um, so I think that's what you're talking about in terms of it's, it's helping you to organize, uh, your thoughts about things that really matter to you. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, for me, um, it's really distilled kind of like what the most important things are in my life. You know, um, I really, really, really desperately miss, um, being with people. I miss being with the choir at the church, for instance, Mm -hmm. deeply not. And it's not like, you know, like a nostalgic, you know, boohoo, I miss it. Like, like I miss sixth grade camp or something. <laughs> it's not like that. It's actually viscerally, it's deep. It's, it's viscerally felt and it's painful. Mm-hmm. It is painful for me. Like I, I confess, like I am in deep pain over it. And, right. um, and what's interesting is it's, it's, you know, caused me to, to feel a little more desperate about getting back to to, to life as it was just to, just to be able to have some semblance of normalcy and to have that mm-hmm. experience again, you know, with my, what I consider my family. Um, so yeah, it's really helped me understand how important certain things are to me deeper than I really realized. Um, and you know, it's, it's the kind of common phrase or idea that, you know, when something is taken away from you, you, you really realize how important it is to you. It's mm-hmm. kind of that experience is really really distilled everything for me and made made me very keenly and acutely aware of of where i am with those things and also of course things that didn't matter to me as much and that i may have invested in that you know maybe didn't require a certain kind of investment Um, right i don't necessarily need to get into those things but um (laughs) well and i've noticed that too like just so you know we're all doing more social media more you know digital communicating and there have been so many times that i have typed something out and just read it and i'm like do i really need to say that is that really necessary for me to just take that stand and i do i'll delete it because before all of this came about before we had our normal life taken away i would have hit send and no don't even worry about it i don't care I'm going to say the truth no matter what. And I'm like, sometimes silence 
it's kindness. And especially when this space, this social media space is all we have, um, kindness is okay. And, you know, like you said, stuff that you, you realize that you were doing that you might not need to do anymore because it's just a waste of energy or a waste of time or whatever. Yeah. I remember, I th- um, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think that because this particular crisis is existential and like, and I mean that in a multidimensional way, because not only is it existential to our lives, you know, we could get the virus or somebody we love could get the virus and actually pass away from mm-hmm. it. Um, it's also existential in terms of our livelihood and the reality that we're going to face when we all emerge from this, what's it going to look like? I think when we're faced with that kind of existential threat, um, it forces us to really, really prioritize what matters. And like you said, not waste time with certain things. Like why, why press in on that thing and make it seem like that thing is the the biggest thing in the world when really Mm -hmm. it's like, you have to embrace the things that mean the most to you in these moments. Um, You know, that's, that's what these moments end up teaching us, I think. Yeah. And, and the existential crisis, I mean, it really strikes me because most of the country still, I mean, if you want to divide it into the ones who have been affected by coronavirus and those who have not still, most of the country is in that haven't been affected by it personally. Like, like for, for me, I don't have any friends here in LA. I have friends in New York who've gotten it, but they were young. They were in my age group and they've gotten better pretty quickly and they're fine. But so it is hard to ask people. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's hard to ask them, but it's hard for some people to wrap their brain around the fact that I'm healthy. My house is the same. Nothing has changed. The only thing that's changed is some unknowable force is telling me I can't go to work and I can't make money right now. But I don't have any friends. I don't see it. It's not real to in my world, you know. And I, I think that's where a lot of people are struggling. That's why these protesters are out there because they don't see it. It hasn't affected them. They don't have a friend who's got it. They don't have a, per, a person who's died from it in their lives. And so it's just not real. And that's the hard part is just having the faith that you're, we're being told the truth because we're seeing it all around us. And just because it doesn't affect me personally 100% in my life, I'm not sick and I don't have a family member who's sick, doesn't mean I shouldn't take it seriously and and help to be a part of the solution. So. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, those people who are protesting are feeling an existential threat in, in their livelihoods, of course, um, but they're obviously not taking seriously the existential threat that is the virus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's... The thing is, you know, what we're learning about this virus is, um, or at least the way that it's been delivered to us, it's all been predictive, right? They're, they've been saying, this is what's going to happen if we don't shelter in place. So if we, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so far, the, you know, people have been really good about it for the most part, you know, especially in the hot spots like New York and um, California. Um, but yeah, it's... unfortunately that mindset will often backfire when it's just too late, you know, it's let's, let's wait for it to get bad and then we can shelter in Mm -hmm. place. Like that's too late because then you end up losing lives. So my, my feeling is I wish, I wish everyone would appeal to both ends of the existential spectrum because I think they're they're both incredibly valid. You know, I, I, I worry about, you know, the future of my work as an artist Mm -hmm. very much. So, um, if anything, the most vulnerable segments of society are, you know, of course, people um, 
who are doing like service work of any sort. Um, and then, uh, you know, the arts as well. I'm really vulnerable because mm-hmm. the, the arts depend very much on uh, a very solid, good economy um, because, you know, um, and I'm not talking about like popular arts. I'm talking specifically classical music and, you know, that kind of art world um, mm-hmm. that it really requires a lot of, uh, good economic activity for arts to be supported in this country because sure. we're, yeah, we're privately mean, supported and not publicly. Well, and that's this, that's so true because we find in these times, like art is when we're, when we're in crisis, that is what we go to. We go to the art, but also when our financial situation is threatened and we have to be a little more frugal, unfortunately the movies are the first to go. The, the concerts are the first to go. Do you want to go see the LA Philharmonic at the Hollywood Bowl? I would love to, but I don't have the money. So whenever econ- economy is involved, your particular um, your particular genre of music and your particular industry is probably one of the hardest hits when you know at the first at the onset. Yeah, that's true. I, the thing that I find most ironic about that, especially at this time, is what's making these shelter in place orders possible and manageable. And, you know, it seems like it's an okay thing is that people are able to experience the arts in their homes, whether it be through, you know, movies, um, television, uh, playing some, something on the radio or, you know, an MP3 or even playing an instrument. Like I I'm playing the piano a mm-hmm. lot now. <laughs> Um, and that was my project was sing. picking up the piano for, for the quarantine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, the arts are, it, it's funny. We often think of the arts as being these kind of like luxuries in life, but actually they're central to, to everyone's life from, from top to bottom in terms of the economic spectrum. Um, mm-hmm. And people don't realize that. And they think of, you know, these things as being, luxuries and elitist and and all that but actually everyone is accessing the arts on some level Mm -hmm. and and by the way the arts are being informed by all the artists who are participating in that right so the classical artist the pop artist the jazz artist the street artist the folk artist like that we're all informing each other because we're all coexisting in this world and we're all speaking at least in each other's direction and Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of you know, interaction. And especially in this day and age when media, multimedia is just so accessible, we're able to experience so much art and so much in in my world, so much music that, you know, we realize like everyone is participating in the arts in some way, being influenced and affected by it. And this time in this crisis, I feel really underscores that because people are much more at peace with following these orders than they would be maybe a hundred years ago, you know, mm-hmm. um, because we're, we just have much more access to art right now <laughs> and it's yeah, keeping I us mean, comfortable and happy and it's keeping us I mean, curious. For better or for worse, we've all seen the Tiger King. <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely a work of art. It was, you know, not all art is, you know, art is, art is subjective. That's right. <laughs> and not all art is great, by the way. Right. But and, and people forget that this industry, well, this when I say this industry, this city that we live in, Los Angeles, the greater Los Angeles area, uh, if, if art didn't exist, this city would be nothing. 
because we are the movie industry. But then you think, well, the movie industry is so far departed from classical music. Well, it's super 100% not because I'm sure, I don't know if you have, because we haven't talked about it, but I know you know people who have been in the orchestra for big budget films and their soundtracks and all that. We are all folding into one another. We are here to make art. And if art goes away, this city is nothing. That's true. Yeah. I mean, LA is an incredibly dynamically artistic city. Um, and yeah, the film industry has a lot to do with that. Um, because of course, think about all of the work that goes into creating a movie and there's so many artisanal layers to that. Um, you have people making background scenes and sets and costumes and jewelry and, makeup artists mm-hmm. and i mean there's so many and then not to mention all the musicians uh have you ever watched a movie without music i mean right. it's an interesting experience it feels very dry <laughs> well and, and i think everybody can know that they have their favorite their favorite um movie score and that and that is the industry that you work in absolutely in of music. and without that that is weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of work for just the musicians after someone composes it and arranges it and everything else. I mean, it is a lot of work that yeah. is done for the industry that seems so superficial when we are all happy, fine and good. But once we go into the bunker to hunker down, that's what we're watching. We're watching movies that have a beautiful score. We're watching movie movies that have been beautifully written and they're accessible to us now more than ever, as you were saying. Mm-hmm. So it's great. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, like, like you mentioned, my, I have friends who, who play in the studio orchestras and they, I know them, I know their experiences. They, they went to school just like me and studied music and they took lessons when they were kids and they've invested so much time and energy in the craft of being able to play a viola or a cello or a trumpet, you know? Um, and that's, that's an incredible skill. It's incredibly specialized um, skill to have and it's a deep art <laughs> so mm-hmm. yes la la as a, a a city that was really born out of the you know its popularity i should say is born out of the film industry um is very dependent on so many of the arts um and that industry alone that's not to mention all the incredible artistic output of the city um, that exists beyond the film world. I mean, the classical music world here is just really, it's incredible. It's its really beautiful and interesting and fascinating. Because I moved here from New York City. Um, and remind me, have you ever, did you ever live in New York? No, I've never lived there. It's such a funny, such an interesting, one of our mutual friends, Ed Tosca, uh, we talk about New York a lot because he lived there for 12 years. I lived there for five and we have a lot of people that we know that have lived in both places. And when you move to Los Angeles from New York, all New Yorkers are kind of, I don't know. They're just very, for lack of a better term, they're a little snooty about it because, you know, New York has a reputation for being so artistic. And I remember posting one night when a mutual friend of ours, one of your section leaders at church and friend of the show, Anthony, per- uh, Anthony Perola, Anthony Ray, <laughs> my, uh, my church husband, who was on the show earlier last year. That's right. Um, 
he invited me to come hear him sing at the Hollywood Bowl with the LA Philharmonic. And I, and I just remember sitting out there under the stars in this amphitheater with palm trees all around. And it was just the most beautiful setting with the most beautiful music. And I just thought there's no way you could get this anywhere else on planet earth than right here in Los Angeles, this conglomeration of the scenery and the ambiance and the music and these pro profoundly talented artists. It's just, it was just, it was very overwhelming to, to know that I have access to things like that here in this city. And, and I know that every other city is, has their own flavor, but it's just, it's fascinating to, to think about because we got the time to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I agree. The Hollywood bowl is a very, very special place. And, um, and that's interesting that you point that out because I think, um, New York, yes, there tends to be this attitude and I don't know if it comes necessarily from New Yorkers, but it definitely comes from the larger world that New York has this mm -hmm. superiority over everywhere else. And that may be true for some things that may be true for some things that New York does incredibly well. Um, but, but New York and LA are just such different cities that it's almost impossible to compare them. Well, and yeah, um, I don't bash New York or any, or Chicago or Montreal or Vancouver, any other. No, city. no, I know, but, it, but you're right. It's, it's, you're right to point that out mm -hmm. um, because there, there, I've experienced the attitude and, and it goes both ways, by the way. <laughs> um, you know, and I've always, as a classical musician felt, oh, I I've never made it unless I've unless I lived in New York city. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I've gotten older and hopefully wiser, um, I've, I've seen the world and my maneuvering in it and, and seen that, no, it was right that I didn't ever go to New York. It wasn't for mm -hmm. me. It wasn't meant to be a New York city musician. That just, that, that wasn't in the cards for me. And, right. you know, I think I'm a better musician because I didn't go to New York because of who I am and what my, my own personal values are. And, Having um, there's been a lot of pressure to go to New York, but no. Has there been? Oh yeah, of course. Uh, from, you know, the institutions themselves to, mm -hmm. you know, just, just, wow, you have to go to that institution. You have to be a part of it to uh, friends, you know, encouraging me, you got to move out here. What are you oh, wasting yeah. your time on the West coast for? <laughs> well, and it's... I had the exact opposite uh, experience. I lived there for five years and I, around the end of that fifth year that we were there, um, I just, we were getting some success. I was having success um, with my career uh, as an improv actor. I was performing every night and, you know, I was doing the podcast and, and I was really seeing some success take off. And it just kind of struck me that like, I can see clearly what success is going to look like here, but it's going to break me. It's going to be such a grind all the time. And that's why I moved out here and I've never been happier because it was just, I knew that I knew I had what it take, takes to make it in New York, but is it a life worth living? And so that's where I chose to move out here. So, yeah, I think it's, it. and, you're, you're well, acknowledging and, which, which shoe fits on, on your feet mm -hmm. best. Well, and that's <laughs> it's so interesting because moving out here, going to St. Thomas, the apostle, because I did, I was, I was fairly new to the church. And I started Googling and I had a few churches I wanted to try out. Um, uh, and St. Thomas was the second church I went to. Um, and 
I tried, I tried it for a little while and then I went to another church for one Sunday and I was like, never mind. St. Thomas is where I want to be. But it's just so fascinating to have lived in New York City, what they consider just, you know, the epicenter of artistic, you know, expression. And then I moved to Los Angeles and I have never in my life been more in, engulfed in this music industry that you're a part of because I walked in and I'm, I'm going to start name dropping a little. I walked in and two people um, welcomed me with open arms, Jim Frazier and Byron Adams. And Byron was just a very nice Southern gentleman who um, was like, do you want to sit with me today? And I was like, sure. It's always nice to sit with somebody in church. Little did I know he was a profoundly successful composer himself. And everybody's like, you know, that's Byron Adams when I was like weeks later. And I'm like, yeah, he introduced himself. That's fine. And over the last two years, getting to know Byron, getting to know you and getting to know Anthony. And then I know several of your friends by proxy. Um, it's just so fascinating to get a first row, front row seat for the classical music world in Los Angeles and not be a part of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I, I think in New York City, um, it's really easy to be immersed in the world of art there in a way because it's it's so compact and, and the concentration mm -hmm. of activity is in such a small location. Whereas in L.A., I think a lot of people could think that that this city is, you know, void of artistic, like true, deep artistic expression, because maybe a person unlike you might um, not ever access it or see it. Now, I think you, because of where you were walking into the church, who you were greeted by, all of that, you know, made an impact on on your ability mm -hmm. to be able to interact with with the arts a little more actively here. Um, and then you get to see it, that it's actually a, a really big and dynamic world, but it can actually, in LA, this is the interesting thing about LA, is everyone can live in these little compartmentalized worlds that you might not be aware of what's going on outside of the little bubble that you have and that you've created for yourself. So yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of people can totally miss that there's a whole lot of art going on in this town. Yeah. Um, but well, I'm glad that you were able to, to just find it. <laughs> well, and I, I, it was so easy that I'm like, is I was like, at first I was like, is all of LA just this? Cause you know, I was like, I'm everywhere because I, um, I, I find really, and this is going to insult so many New Yorkers and I don't really care, but I find that, New York tells you what's, what is art and Los Angeles, you have the space to discover it for yourself. And that, that to me is the difference you, cause I worked in times square. So I walked down the street and I'm like, Oh, we're all supposed to be really super excited about Hamilton because everybody's excited about Hamilton. Or I would see this billboard that I'm like, Oh, the, you know, the, you know, there's somebody playing at the Lincoln center today. So I'm supposed to be excited about that, you know, but here in LA, you have to seek it just a little. And, and that's good. I think art should be sought rather than shoved down your perception, shoved down your <laughs> eyesight. You know what I mean? Your eye line. Yeah. I understand that actually. I think, I think the reason why New York may be like that is because they have a deeper institutional relationship with art than the West does. The West, um, and, you know, lots of artists have talked about that. There have been several artists who were born and raised and educated on, on the East Coast, and they they decided to take this, this epic journey to the West. Mm -hmm. And 
and and to find themselves artistically because they needed to disconnect from the institutional sort of presence of, of the East Coast and go to the West where it was free and open. And, you know, this a lot of artists in like the 60s and 70s uh, talk about that that experience, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and how they were able to be more free with their artistic expression because they didn't have to appeal to the institution. Um, I think there's there's a lot of truth to that. I, I I can't say that it's the absolute truth because I mean some of the greatest creative artists in America have come out of the East Coast, of course. And mm-hmm. you know I don't want to I don't want to. <laughs> minimize that or but i think there's something special about the way it feels to be out here as an artist um and i, I think it does have something to do with the lack of of institutional control i think it's probably mm. what it is yeah well you know what i think that is a great time for us to take a break and when we come back i'm going to get into some really specific questions about the art All right, we are back, and I want to get into the nature of what it is you do. So I've got some questions that I started pondering over the last couple of days um, in thinking about this episode. So first of all, I want to start with, um, because Ethan, my partner, uh, posted on the the, um, Facebook page, the Facebook group, a question that got me to thinking, he was saying, asking how you would classify the type of music you you play and, and create, or would you classify it? And I want to tie that into my question that I had written down just sort of in my own thoughts of classical music. Is classical music what you do, and is that the appropriate thing to call it? Yeah, I, I definitely classify it as classical Um and I do think it's the appropriate thing to call it. And of course, you know, there are, I guess there are solid standard definitions of these things, but if, you know, we live in a time where we're, we challenge those definitions, which I think is very healthy, but I do, I think I appeal more to the classic definition of what it means to be a classical musician and a classical artist. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's, it's um, the way I view it is that it is um, attached to a literary tradition. Okay, so I and I mean that not in a in the sense of reading books, mm-hmm. but actually having um, written media that conveys the musical idea. Um, I think that's a very important feature of classical music. Probably one that is um, not necessarily unique to it, but it's where classical music starts. It starts from the written form, right? If you think about jazz and popular music, there's of course there's a written element to it. But there's also more of an improvisatory quality and a free-form quality to um, those particular genres of music, whereas classical music is almost strictly a written medium. That's mm-hmm. not to say that there aren't improvisatory elements or um, that uh, there isn't some freedom. Of course, there's freedom of, of expression. Like, you know, why does... Mitsuko Uchida play the Mozart sonatas and then Daniel Barenboim play the Mozart sonatas. Like, don't we already have the recording by Mitsuko mm-hmm. Uchida? Well, it's because they, they're interpreting. And, and is that what you mean by 
the, it, about the written, you know, a Mozart piece is a Mozart piece is a Mozart piece. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, and then and then the the interpretation of of those pieces is the this the subtle distinction, you know, between performances. Um, sometimes not subtle, actually. <laughs> and what would that um, look like? The interpretation, like, what do you mean by interpretation for that? Because I mean, it's really I get... hard to demonstrate. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because I want to just I will just stop right there for just a moment to say that I'm I am very very curious because, like I said, I've been in this world. Of, cl- of classical music, since we know what we're calling it, classical music, because I have friends who are that, and um, I love Byron Adams dearly. He is my church partner and friend. Sometimes he will tell me about classical music, and I'm, I I just nod, because I'm like, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm, that, that's right. Oh, and he's like, you'll love this, and he'll explain exactly why I'm going to love it, and I'll be like, I did love it, but I literally specifically loved it because it sounded pretty and that's all I know. So, you know, so that's, that's where we're going because, you know, you hear different types of people in pop music saying, you know, a Joni Mitchell song and you're like, Oh my God, I could love what she did with that. Or, you know, like jazz is probably the most dramatic of the interpretation, um, interpretations yes. that you could do right i would yeah I would because of, because it's just I, so all over the place and as long as you kind of have is, a little bit of a melody you're fine <laughs> at the heart of jazz is improvisation so mm-hmm. yeah you can give uh you know you can give chord charts so, so you know essentially so yeah jazz, that was my point that was the point i was trying to make was we know exactly what you're talking about when you say your interpretation of that song when it comes to things like pop or jazz or this what does that mean in classical music well i actually it's, what comes to mind specifically is do you know the um uh the tori amos uh version of smells like teen spirit mm-hmm. it's amazing it's it's so different than the nirvana you know the original nirvana yeah um but that's that's kind of the way when we think of somebody doing a cover that they can they transform it and reinvent it Mm -hmm. um those transformations and reinventions are much more subtle in classical music in that um you know it's a it's a matter of maybe modifying the tempo meaning the speed of the music or um articulating so for instance like making something sound a little more detached like ba, 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 versus ba 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 more connected um oh, wow. and, and there's a lot of <laughs> there are a lot of layers that can be manipulated to create a very you know unique performance i mean it's going to be unique anyway um mm-hmm. just ima- the ones that tend to stand out are the most deliberate you know transformations and and interpretations of that music but are still abiding by you know the notational elements like you know when we're talking about music being notated we're talking about those dots on the page are specific to pitches meaning you know like la versus la you know mm-hmm. um and then also and that uh, is very di- subtle like yeah yeah yeah. and then the duration of, the duration of the pitch all of those things are are indicated written you know as written down it's 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 the timbre, the instruments that are, are are assigned, the notes that they're given, the specific pitches, the durations of those pitches, the speed of the music, um, all of those things are given. But even within that kind of rigid framework, there's a lot of flexibility to interpret those things. So in classical music, classical artists all over the world are constantly playing and replaying and replaying and replaying the same pieces over and over again um, with their own kind of signature interpretation on it. Now, 
to the average person that the distinction between two performances might not be palpable. They might not hear it. Um, but the more you, the more you get into it, the deeper you dive into that kind of music, then you start to pick up on the subtleties and you don't have to be a musician necessarily to hear them, but I think it's more exposure, you know, like for instance, when I was a kid, um, I got a bunch of CDs for Christmas, you know, and those, this was like my first set of classical CDs that my mom gave me because I was studying piano. How old were you? And, uh, I was eight when I studied piano. I think she got me them the Christmas following. I was probably was nine. Mm. And, you know, I was so attached to those recordings. The next time I actually got to hear, like, let's say, uh, the, the Chopin piano concerto that I had mm. on that CD, I got to hear another pianist with another orchestra play it. And I was like, that sounds wrong. That sounds oh, really right. wrong to me. And it was because I was used to the nuances and the subtleties that I had listened to over and over and over again that I got so used to it that when I heard the Chopin performed by another pianist and another conductor and another orchestra, it all sounded wrong to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's the thing. Like, you know, more exposure you have to this kind of music, the more you hear the subtleties of performance. And then you get to see mm-hmm. there's a certain poetry in the way a person expresses themselves through those little tiny subtle details. Mm-hmm. That's so fascinating. I just, something just occurred to me, a question that I hadn't even really thought about before, but hearing you talk about how you can have subtle differences and add your own identity to a piece. Um, it just, for some reason, it just came straight into my brain. Dolly Parton writing, I will always love you. And then, um, Whitney Houston taking it. And because I, mean, I will always love you was a huge, um, it was a huge country music hit. And then it was, um, in the musical, the best little whorehouse in Texas. And it became a huge country hit again. And then Vince Gill did a duet with her and it became a, a huge country hit again. So in its own right, it was a big, huge hit and it's continuously been voted the most romantic song of all time. <laughs> and then Whitney Houston took it. And now people think that it's a Whitney Houston song, right? Is there any, is there things like that that happen in the classical music world like that, that they, because it is the arrangement of I will always love you is so it's, it's the same melody, but the arrangement is so different that it's just, it's different. And you can, you can love them both equally and independently because they are so different. Is there anything like that? Yeah, I mean, where somebody takes someone else's work and makes it their own so much that you own it now. Well, definitely in in, in the world of performance, there's certainly like what are considered, you know, authoritative recordings of certain pieces, right? And then someone comes along and outdoes that, and then that's the authoritative performance. But mm-hmm. but that's more subtle. I there's um there's a, a very famous piece by um Mazorsky, who's a Russian composer, called uh, Pictures at an Exhibition. It's a very famous piece. And it's written for piano, solo piano. The French composer Maurice Ravel took that piano piece and orchestrated it for full orchestra. Okay. Oh, wow. The piece became famous because of Ravel's orchestration. People listened to the orchestrated version of that piece, and it's performed far more than the solo piano version. When did they do that? Do you know the dates? Well, Mazorsky was a 19th century composer. Okay. Um, so in the, in the 1800s, late 1800s. And then I think Ravel orchestrated them in, you know, maybe the first quarter of the 20th century. I, I'm not sure. He died, I think, in the 
1940s. That's just so fascinating um, because I'm sure I was wondering if that was a time when people had had a really big attachment to like going to going to hear concerts and going to hear the orchestra at that mm-hmm. time. And that's why it became so popular, perhaps. Yeah, but you know, you would think the piano part would be more popular because it's something people could play at home. They wouldn't oh, yeah, have to go, huh? you know, I mean, the idea behind having solo repertoire printed was was really attractive to publishers because people could make art in their own home. They didn't have to go, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't have to <laughs> go true. to concerts, you know, that's so the, the printing industry really benefited from, from that because people wanted to play music in their own homes. But so you would think that pictures in an exhibition would become, would be a more popular piano piece, but it's really Ravel's rendition of it that made it incredibly popular. So, yeah, you know, actually um, going back to the classical idea of, of performing and reperforming works for you as an actor, I think um, a really good, uh, a really good similarity would be like Shakespeare, for instance, mm-hmm. the famous soliloquy to be or not to be, you can think of, you know, probably five, 10 different performances of that that are so different but they're reading the same words that Shakespeare wrote, right? Mm-hmm. It's all about all that inflection, the tone. In fact, I was on, on Facebook the other day and saw um, some actor, uh, he seemed British, uh, he was acting that out. And it was such a muted performance of that. It was very casual and very different than anything mm-hmm. I'd ever seen. And I, I really liked it. And a lot of people liked it too for that same reason, because it just had a totally different flavor but he's reading literally the same words that everyone's yeah. read it's, over the course of history since Shakespeare wrote that. Real, that is really, that's a great analogy for yeah. people because I think there's a lot of people out there who really want to understand, or maybe they don't want to understand, or, or not consciously want to understand classical music, but they don't understand it. And and I something I would like to do with this this episode is, to make some of that more accessible for people. Um, so I'm just curious, what do you have a favorite piece that, what is your favorite piece to listen to? Ooh, that's hard to say because it's constantly. Or is it, it is just like, just like listening to pop on the radio right now. This is what I'm into. Yeah. I can't say I have a favorite anything to be honest. I mean, there's, it may not have to be exclusive. I'd have to exclude. <laughs> but no, I I find um, for me lately, and I think it's because I, I'm a church music director, I really love listening to sacred choral music, specifically choral and organ music, that pairing together. I just find mm. it to be fascinating and beautiful. And it has to do with just my, my current relationship with music that's so deeply in, involved with um, the choir and the organ and I can, I can be personally invested in that sound. And it just kind of reminds me of when I was a kid, when I first got interested in classical music, it had nothing to do with classical music. It had everything to do with the piano. And I, you know, my neighbors down the street, they were all, their parents made them all take piano lessons. And so I go over there and I'd marvel. I just sit there and watch them. And it wasn't the music per se. It was just how cool it was that they were making those sounds on the instrument like that in such an organized fashion and with such precision and it was beautiful and interesting. And so the first classical music I listened to was piano music because it was interesting to me. I could, it's the thing I liked. And then of course it it broadened. So I I started from a very specific, very small place. And then Mm -hmm. it just grew and developed into this 
this beautiful tree that has so many branches. And, and now I'm on this branch that has to do with the organ and the choir. And it's, it's thrilling. Yeah. To watch you play the organ is, it's just so fascinating. And we did, we did a little rearranging at the church and people are upset because used to, we could watch you play, but for the acoustics, we we changed where your console was. And now people cannot see you playing the organ. And some people are pretty upset, but it's fine. <laughs> We're okay. The music is, I mean, I'm not that it could get any better because you're so wonderful and you're the choir is so wonderful, but it is better for you. You've told me, but you have how many, how many keyboards is it on the deck? Yeah, they're called manuals because we manual with, with the organ, you play um, some of the instrument you play with your hands. Mm-hmm. And some of the instrument you play with your feet. So yeah. <laughs> we call we call the, the 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 part that we play with our hands. We call them manuals. And the organ, manuals. unlike the piano, has multiple manuals. So you'll notice when you look at an organ, it has a vertical stack of manuals. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes some organs have just one, like a piano, but then they'll have one on top of that. So they have two manuals. Sometimes three, four. And at St. Thomas, we have five. <laughs> and there yeah. are some that have seven. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and they control just different parts of, of the organ. So, so well, and I've been at the church for two and a half years now, and there are still times when I'll walk into a room and I'll see pipes, and I'll be like, "Oh, we have organ pipes there too. That's interesting." Because <laughs> so, yeah. we have so many pipes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the organ is interesting because you can have the organ, you know, in one location where all the pipes are basically, you know, up front or in back, wherever. And that's mm-hmm. it. Um, or you can literally scatter them around like we do at St. Thomas. We have it on the east transept, the west transept. We have in the back of the church state trumpets. We have chimes over the, the doors. We have another set of doors with pipes over them across the way. And mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's fascinating. We have a forest of pipes, you know, um, in the west transept mm-hmm. that you can kind of walk through. And, yeah, it's cool. It's a very 3D multi-dimensional So if you're in the area, come to see us at St. Thomas the Apostle Hollywood and hear Jeffrey Carolla play. Yes. Um, yeah. So I'm curious, what, I, mean, I don't know, I, I kind of feel like I know what your answer is going to be <laughs> for this question, but what do you prefer, playing or composing or conducting or singing? Because you do all of them extremely well. Thank you. Um I think playing is is certainly my my most favorite thing. It's because it's where I started, you know, and it's it's where my relationship with music is the mm-hmm. it's most intimate. It's where I get to be with music, um, and I can be alone with music that way, and really experience music deeply. The thing I love most about being a musician, specifically a classical musician, is that the notes on the page teach me so much about life, because what people who aren't classical musicians probably miss and don't understand is that everything that's on the page is an expression of relationships. And I mean, relationships on all levels from human relationships to, you know, a person's relationship to an environment or, you know, all kinds of relationships, scientific relationships, um, objective relationships, um, numbers and, you know, things like intervals and (laughs) all of these things. Music has so many layers that can teach a person about life and in such a broad and dynamic and universal way. So when I go play the instrument, when I go to play the keyboard, I'm learning. I'm learning about myself. I'm learning about the world. I'm learning about the whole universe. I'm learning about God. You know, it's 
it's an incredible experience. And if there's any way I could advocate for classical music or music in general, you know, music making mm-hmm. for people to take up an instrument, it's that it will make you a better person in a way. I mean, of course, any, any endeavor, any good endeavor can make you a better person. But I think if you really uh, dive deeply into classical music or any music, I should say, um, it'll teach you about relationships. You have to open your mind to that concept when you do it. But when you, when you do, you really begin to see how important those relationships are to the inherent nature of music itself. And then it comes and just with this full circle and then you, you begin to assimilate those lessons. It's, it's really profound. I keep going to the keyboard to learn, to grow. That, that is so be fascinating. Better. Yeah. And, and then of course the experience of conducting choir has similar, has similar um, lessons and also composing. I learn a lot when I'm composing too. You have to listen for, you know, what do the notes want to do? Is it about me? No, it's about mm-hmm. what the notes want to do. And so there's a temptation, of course, when, you know, when you're writing music, it's like, it's all about self-expression, but it isn't, it is and it isn't. Um, it's also about objective relationships outside of you. And I, you have to be objective when you listen to your own music. It's really interesting. I just had this notion because I am specifically an improv actor. And when you are doing improv, um, correctly and successfully you're on stage you hear your prompts and you literally do follow your first instinct sometimes that will get you into trouble because it reveals what your instincts are i've seen i've seen people who are fantastic uh improv actors who have revealed themselves to be racist because they followed their first instincts or you know stuff like that but you know that being said, that's a whole different episode for a different time. But when you are following your instincts on stage for improv, um, you're going out there and you're always constantly surprised by the characters that come out of you. And um, I, it just struck me that that might be the same way for your compositions. For you are finding finding what does this note want to do, finding what does that you know what direction does it want to take? Does it want to be a half step faster? Um, is that pretty accurate to say about when you're composing? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's about being honest with what is coming out of you, what the material actually is. And, you know, um, I think that that's what you have to do as an improv actor. You know, I've heard, I've, correct me if I'm wrong, when you're, when you're doing improv, um, theatrical improv, that it's about listening and not fighting the nature of what you're what, what you're experiencing. So say for instance, you have somebody with you improvising and they say, you know, a certain word and that, that word conjures certain images and certain behaviors. And Mm -hmm. then you just say, well, I don't want to do that. Right. That actually works against it. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas it does. When you, when you say I'm going to work with that, then you have to listen to that thing and let it be what it is. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with music, with composing. Yeah. And, and, and do you, because I'll, I'll say this, I like this comparison between my art and yours. Um, when I go, and some people will dispute this, but when I go on stage, um, sometimes, if, especially if I'm not feeling it that night, you know, if I'm not feeling like I'm, you know, my synapses are firing it, you know, on all, all spots. But um, I, I always have this little trick that I make a decision for myself that I choose what the emotion is. 
and then I choose a weird, uh, either a weird thing or a fascinating thing to do. And one of mine that I used a lot in New York was, I'm elated and I am in love with your brother. Whoever my scene partner is, whatever that means to you, that's the only decisions I have made. And sometimes the, my scene partner comes out and they are my husband or my wife. And I'm like, well, I've made that decision. I am in love with your brother. <laughs> so that's where I'm going with this. And, you know, you try to stay as grounded as you can, but that's where the funny comes in is if you are totally committed to what you have decided to do, but also fully validating what that other person is presenting to you as well. And that's, that's why it is so hard for some people. And for me, I love that there is no prep time. You go out there and you just leave it all out on the stage and then you walk away. And, th and that's something that happened a lot in New York was people be like, I remember seeing you in this show and you did such and such and such and such. And I'm like, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I do not remember creating that character. I'm super glad you loved it. So but yeah, it's, it really is about just, it's, it's that delicate balance. And I would, I wonder if that's true, true for music too, of sticking with your instincts and not fighting it because you want to create something that you've already gotten in your head that you want to create, but also knowing when to let it go. Like it's yeah. not going to work, let it go. Like sometimes you have to, you know, I've had to decide I'm no longer in love with your brother because it's too complicated on right, stage, right. you know? So there is, there's similarity. I mean, so in music, there is such a thing as improvisation, which I do often at, at St. Thomas. And um, the risk with improvisation, like you know, is once you've once that idea is out there, it's out mm -hmm. there. So yep. you you either roll with it or you completely change it. And completely changing it could be could be interesting, but that that is a higher risk. Mm -hmm. um, whereas with composition, um, you know, I can compose and create material, and if I don't like it, I throw it away. I don't have to work with it. Right. Um, the, the nice thing about composition is, you know, you find material that resonates with you and then, then you listen to it and say, ah, oh, where does it want to go? Where should it go? Who should it be? Let's, let's listen to what's in there because it has its own kind of genetic, you know, DNA has its own inherent characteristics. So you mm -hmm. have to work with what those characteristics are similar to improv. But again, with composition, you have the luxury of actually taking the time to find the right material and then taking the time to really get to know it. Yeah. That's the, that's the big difference between, you know, composition and improvisation. This was so much fun. I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show today. I I'm already going to ask you and beseech you to come back sometime because we have so much more to talk about because I'm endlessly fascinated. Well, thank you. I'd love um, to come back. Yes, that would be so much fun. Maybe someday we'll get to sit in the same room together yes. <laughs> and have a conversation. Sooner than um, later. So I like to always open up the floor for my guests to get people to follow them on social media if that's something they'd want to do. Or maybe, you know, where can people hear your, wor your work even if they wanted to hear some stuff you composed? I do have a website. It's mylastname.org so that's p-a-r-o-l-a dot org o-r-g um that's probably the easiest way to do it i do have a youtube channel um that features my work um you can actually find link to that on my website 
And if you want to um, follow me, I'm at Kyle L. Henderson on Twitter and at Kyle L. Henderson on Instagram. And if you want to be a part of the conversation, just go to Not For Nothing on the Facebook page. And I also will ask everyone to rate and subscribe to the podcasts on your favorite podcasting app and give us a, a review and I'll read it on the, on the show. Well, Jeffrey Parola, this was so much fun and it was really nice to join you bunker to bunker today. Absolutely. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you so much. Well, I'm going to go and listen to some classical music and you all should too. And I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.